A text we'll be looking at this morning is printed in your bulletin. If you were here uh, several weeks back, um, yes, I'm aware that uh, a very good friend of mine preached on this passage not long ago, actually the last, about a month ago. Um, just know this, I'm going to throw this out as a caveat, I have not listened to his sermon. While I, I have no idea what he preached on, so uh, if there are similarities or not, it cannot be attributed to that. Um, we come to this portion, we're looking at uh, really the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And it brings us to this really odd story, uh, at least to us. How do we know this morning that our experience of God is real? How do we know it's not just a psychological or that it's some kind of spurious chemical activity? How do you know you, when you've had a real encounter? Actually, John the Baptist asked Jesus that very question. How do we know that you're the real thing? And Jesus' response was simply this. Look at my ministry. Look at what happens around me. Uh, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are healed, the poor have good news preached to them. Just so you know, the only time before Jesus that these things occurred uh, was during Elijah and Elisha's ministries. And all of those things happened because God came down. He visited His people. So what Jesus is saying, He's saying, look at these four things. They're not just miracles, but they're signs really of what it means to meet the real God. These four things actually point to Jesus and tells us what it's like to actually meet Him, to actually encounter Him. So even this little story that we'll read this morning really is a description of what a life-changing encounter with God would look like. Now look with me from Second Kings. I'll read chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. Now Nahum was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Nahum's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Nahum went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Nahum left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Nahum to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Nahum went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elijah sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. So Nahum went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to meet me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord as God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. For not Abanama and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could not wash in them and be cleansed. So he turned and went off in a rage. 
And the servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Nahum and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is a God in all the world, that there is no God in all the world except Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Nahum urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Nahum, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifice to any god but the Lord. May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temples uh, of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace. Elijah said. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would be with us as we look into the story of your prophet, your servant, uh, that you would be with us this morning for all of us come needing to meet with you, not um, just as an emotional moment, but instead in the reality of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Many of the products that we run across are designed to imitate the real thing. There is plastic decking that looks like real wood. Uh, There's vinyl flooring that appears to be ceramic. Uh, We all know that you can purchase fake fur or jewelry, phony noses, hair pieces, and any other body part that you might want. Um, The purpose behind all of these is obvious, but my favorite one is a product that's been released that is catching on, actually, in this country, and it is um, spray-on mud. Um, It is designed according to the Creator, for use outside your SUV. Uh, That way, it appears that you actually use uh, your SUV for more than taking your kids to soccer practice. Uh, You spray it on, according to the Creator, um, and it looks like you've returned from a wilderness adventure. (laughs) Sales of the product are going extremely well in this country. The product originated in London, um, and the creator said this, if they want an authentic look, I put that in quotes, there's not a lot else they can do. There's not a lot of mud in Chelsea. So $15 doesn't seem like very much a reasonable price for the appearance of something authentic, which happens to be mud. Uh, This story calls on us to not settle, instead to encounter the real God. So how does that happen? Um, How do we come? Um, How do we meet God? And what are the results according to this story? Two things here in this little account bring Nahum Nahum to Elisha's door. It it is strange in the story actually that a Syrian general would dare to come to the door of a prophet in Israel. So what brings him? Uh, Just a description of Nahum early on. He is a guy that has everything going for him. What do I mean by that? He has everything that's right. He is the ultimate, consummate insider. He's described as a victor, but much more than that, he's a celebrity. He is on the inner ring of power and influence. 
Everything seems to be going Nahum's way. Everything seems to be right. And yet he's got leprosy. Now that's actually what he has. Not, he's not a leaper, as the bulletin says. He's, which shows you what spell correction does with words like this that none of us picked up on, by the way. Um, it's very telling here. Leprosy in the ancient Near East was the disease of an outsider. It started as just a spot, um, but it basically killed you by having you fall completely apart. To look at a leper was horrible, uh, the best description. And there was with it a fear of contagion. And for that reason, they were not just thought of as outsiders, they were actually literally treated as such, socially, religiously, in every way that you can imagine they were put out. The iron, the iron, iron, um, irony, yeah, there you go, uh, of the story is this. Nahum is portrayed here as a complete insider, and yet something shows up that makes him an outsider. And the story is telling because it says that it's just a spot. But he couldn't deal with this. The ultimate insider, and yet underneath, he realizes that he's an outsider. It's just a matter of time before this shows up. Have you ever thought of why all of us want to be on the inside? It doesn't matter what you think the inside is. You want to be smart enough to be in the intellectual ring or beautiful enough to be in the social ring, or wealthy enough to be in the power ring. Or, if you know you can't get into any of those rings, we want to look down our nose at the people that are in those rings. I'm not going to do that. How pathetic. Those people on the inside are just shallow. Um, They're snobs. They're sellouts. The reason the Bible offers a comprehensive sort of explanation of that We want to be on the inside so much because all of us know deep down inside we're on the outside. That we've been cast out of, according to the Bible story, real power. We've been alienated from real beauty. The description that's given us in the garden, we were naked. We knew God. We were His children. And we decided there to be our own masters. And because of that, we became deeply ashamed and we covered up. We realized, according to the story, that we were on the outside of real beauty and real wealth. And so there's this desperation to get on the inside of every inner circle that you can imagine. It's not just what happens here. It's not just the presence that we see. It's also the inability in verses 2 through 6. I don't know if you picked up on this, but basically the world can't help you, and it certainly can't help Nahum. He actually believes that religion is a function of culture. What do I mean by that? He repeatedly in the story decides to go to the top. He goes to the kings. And yet he keeps getting these messages through slaves. Um, Nahum does everything in the story all wrong. He sees the problem, the spot, and he immediately gets religious. If I do right, if I live right, then God will bless me. So what does he do? He goes to the top. He goes to insiders. The girl says, go to the prophet. But where does he go? He goes to the kings. Religion, as we know it, as Nahum knows it, is all about insiders. It's about respectable people. We could ask this question, who do you think God is working with? 
most of us would answer that really good people. People who have it together. People who have risen to the top. Very few of us would say, I want to go to the failures, <laughs> to the broken, to the outsiders. Why in the world would you want to have anything to do with them? Because this is undercurrent, this sort of thought that the people at the top are those that God has really blessed. You want to go talk to them. And yet, God keeps sending slaves. Um, that's what he does for Nahum. This morning, you will never meet God without a sense that something's not right. And without the sense that the culture can't help you. Even those of us that are the ultimate insiders, some spot has to show up. In spite of a killer resume, most of us feel like imposters. You cannot meet God without knowing your own need. You might believe none of this, but let me ask you, why do you have this voice in your heart that continually whispers to you that you're a fool? The voice that says you're a failure and that you're an idiot. Um, some of us would say, well, my parents caused that. Or, um, or more specifically, my mother. Um, listen, those of us who had great mothers have that voice too. Bad parents can aggravate that voice, but they don't cause it. Uh, there's something much deeper. So how does the healing come in the story? So how do you meet God if that's sort of the, the groundwork? Uh, just first, the scandal, and it's seen in 11 through 14. Do you know, why is Nahum so angry here in the story? Um, why did, when, when actually the prophet, Elisha told him, go wash in the Jordan, why did that upset him so much? Just the details, the little hidden details of the story. Nahum brought an enormous amount of money with him. Just to sort of let you know, he brought 700 pounds of silver with him, 125 pounds of gold, and garments worth a king's ransom. Where in the world did he get that kind of money? And where did he get those resources? The writer is telling you that Nahum basically thinks, uh, look at my life. I deserve to be healed. And the river Jordan, compared to Bana or Farfar, it's just a nasty, muddy stream. In other words, why would my rivers not be enough? Nahum is insulted. He's angry. Because it's free. Uh, in other words, any idiot could do this. You don't need a king's ransom to do this. In verse 13, he wants something great uh, that he can earn. Look, an ass or a midget can do this. He wants a cure that he can be proud of. And he's offended, actually, by Elisha's response. He comes with his entourage this whole train of people that he's brought with him, and Elijah doesn't even come out to meet him for crying out loud. Uh, verse 11, I thought surely he would come out to meet me. And the emphasis in this sentence is on the me portion. Elijah, he treats me like everybody else. He doesn't make a fuss over me. How dare he do this? 
just so you know, Gehazi is offended as well. He's not, so it's not just Nahum. You've got Elisha's servant. He's offended that actually grace was offered uh, to this Aramean. And he wanted to personally benefit from this, by the way. Why did God respond so hard? Gehazi is trying to undo everything that God is doing here. What God wanted Nahum to know, what Elisha was determined for Nahum to know, was that God's grace is free. You can't put a price tag on it. God would be just as gracious to their enemies as He had been to them. And that is deeply offensive. God had promised the nation of Israel that long ago they'd be a light to the nations. All the nations would be blessed through them. And what you see in this really no-account story that seems weird to us, sandwiched where it is, is that God is extending His grace even to those that would be classified as enemies. It's not just the scandal of what's offered here. I don't know if you noticed how it comes to Nahum. First, just the people that have to tell him what to do. He heard about it through, really, a slave girl who gives him information about which if he didn't get this, he'd be dead. Secondly, his wife tells him of all things. And then if that were not enough, in verse 13, his servants tell him to go. Nahum would be dead without his friends is the best description. Listen, no matter where you are this morning, people meet God through friends. Another way to put this, without friends, you're never going to meet God. You're never going to find Him on your own without a community of people who are urging you, pushing you, who are talking to you like this. If you're afraid of of talking to your doubts about someone, if you just want to slip in and out, if you don't want to be involved, then really what that says is you're too proud to be healed. What's even more telling in the story is this. All of this, I don't know if you noticed this, which is why I wanted to preach on this because I find this to be... Um, really hilarious is the best description. Um, It comes through a little girl is the best description. How can something this wonderful just be free? Well, it's free sort of. Uh, Deliverance for him comes through this slave girl, and there's nothing in the story to commend her. She's most likely been taken as a part of an Aramean raid. She's a living witness to the fact that Nahum is a very effective military commander. Um, And here, she is an alien without rights. According to the story, she's a young girl, probably 12 or 13 maybe, um, in a culture that had no value on slaves and even less value on women. You could not find somebody lower in the social hierarchy than she is. And who would blame her in the story? She's taken away by her family. In fact, probably her family had been massacred. Whatever dream she had, completely gone. Who's responsible for that, by the way? Who ruined her life? And what does she do? Well, she does what I wouldn't do, by the way. She could have said, the old goat has leprosy. Finally, payback, I'm going to dance on his grave. She all could have responded by saying, uh, shaking her fist at God, watching as Nahum literally fell apart. And the, the reality is we would never have heard of her. 
The amazing part of this story, she obeys God in the dark. And the whole account hangs on her. The language here is really uh, amazing. She longs for her captor, for her master to be healed. These are deep words of love. God leaves one witness in this place. One to His saving grace and His mercy. To this pagan, this outsider, this Gentile, this one person. She is truly the suffering servant. She's the one who lost everything so that this one could be cured of his spot. She actually was, or he actually was cured because he had a suffering slave in his life. Now the question for us this morning, where are you going to find someone like that? She prays the price of being useful. And then an extension, how can you be like her? Only if you have the one that actually her life points to. There's one who left the father willingly. He wasn't actually taken captive. He actually lost his father by choice. He was the prince before he became a slave. And what did he do when they were betraying him? Denying him, ridiculing him, degrading him. His response was one of deep, incredible love and passion. Father, forgive them. You will never be like this little girl unless you look at him. See, who points us? Who is like Jesus in the story? It's not Nahum. And it's not Gehazi. And it's not even Elisha. It's her. The reality is God gives us what we don't want. Religion basically says, I want to earn my way and control God. Christianity says, uh, God gives freely and you don't, and, uh, you don't owe Him. We want to be able to say, to wait, and to ask God for anything. I have my rights. I've worked hard. You don't understand. Look at my life. But you come to this one and you lose complete control. Jesus became the suffering servant who died in the dark. And the world said nothing good could come out of that. His love and His passion actually drove Him to that. His love and His passion for you. All this girl knew was that God was her judge and in some general way that her life kind of fit into His story and it made sense. But this morning, you know what Jesus has done for you. You know the depths, the reality actually that this story points toward. If you see that then you can forgive other people. You can actually pay the price. Others will be changed through you, and that brings us to the results of this story, or actually the result that you see here. In verse 15, Nahum responds, Now I know that there's no God except for this one. There's no way of meeting this God without having sort of a new belief system, a new perspective on life. It is absolutely nonsense to think that the mind and heart are separated. The mind and heart actually go together. First you see that his priorities become completely different. Nahum becomes unbelievably generous. He wants to give a gift. He wants to give. Suddenly all these things in her life that once were precious to him now become dispensable. They're not crucial anymore. The grace of God makes Christ precious to us, one writer said, 
so that our possessions, our money, our time have all become eternally and utterly expendable. They used to be crucial for our happiness. Now they're not so. I want you to see the story. You have a layperson here who's actually asking to give money and the minister says no, um, that he won't take it. I will just tell you, I've never seen that happen. <laughs> uh, normally, it's just the opposite. Because before the gospel comes in, before we actually meet the real Jesus, money is our security and our self-esteem. But after, it's just money. You respond by saying, it's just money, would you like some? One of the ways you know that you're saved by grace is that you become radically generous like Nahum. And then, just if that were not enough, there's the perspective here. I want you to notice that he goes back. And this is an important part of the story, at least for us. What was Nahum's job? He was the prime minister. There's none of that ridiculous idea that he must now do something else. No idea that he really needed to quit his job and join Elisha's merry men. Um, or that he needed to somehow go into full-time Christian work, whatever that means. Um, it's not that he's bailing on the hard task. But he goes back, but not in the same way. For some of us respond, look, the trouble is my job. That There's all this idolatry I want to keep my job, and yet I want to let everyone know there uh, that God is my God and that I'm deeply offended by them. What do you see from Nahum? Every week I must accompany my king into the temple of Ramon. That is the God of Aaron. What he's saying is that although I serve my country, I refuse to worship it. I'll go and do my duty. All of us have to be as creative as that. What does that mean for you? I don't really know. How do you keep your job, serve God, and yet not be controlled by the idols that are present in your work and in those around you? How can you keep your business without worshiping money? How can you be a mother without worshiping your kids? How can you be married without your marriage being an idol? You see, you can't just get out. Instead, what you find in Nahum is that he goes back. And I know some of you are thinking, how dare you? You can't go back to that awful place. Um, it's spiritually tainted. That has been actually the Christian response, certainly down through the years. And yet he goes back and he struggles. It's a weird sort of place. Everyone who goes back into their lives with faith had the same kind of challenges. See, what's your way this morning if you're a Christian? Religion privatizes things. But how can I be utterly consistent with the God of grace who bought me? And then further, do you have these traits? What do I mean by that? Is there radical generosity present in you? Are you taking the initiative to give more of your money away because the gospel has made it just money? Are you one of those people uh, that try to witness at work by sticking a great big Bible on your desk or by letting everyone know how offended you are by them or by where they go to lunch or by what they dare do? Look, you've got to be more creative than that. 
Have you met God? You'll be as changed as Naomi. If you have, you'll be as useful as this little girl. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your great love and mercy that You call on us as Your people to meet with You. And none of the ways that we pretend to will be enough. We have to engage the One who came for us, the One who gave up everything for us, the One who suffered in the dark and in the dark places for us. May that be true of us this morning. May we experience You and may we serve You like this little girl. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.